You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. A lot of the scams do come out of Nigeria. Interestingly enough, though, Nigeria is also one of the countries that is the worst affected by cybercrime itself. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Anna Collard. She's the founder of a security content publisher called Popcorn Training. They're a South African company, and they promote cybersecurity awareness using story-based techniques. Our conversation centers on the state of cybersecurity in Africa. Really interesting stuff. And we are back. Joe, I am going to kick things off this week with some good news. Okay. This is a story. Finally. Yeah, I know, at last. (laughs) This is a story from Ars Technica written by Timothy B. Lee. The uh, title is DOJ Sues U.S. Telecom Providers for Connecting Indian Robocall Scammers. Uh (laughs) Aha. This is good news. Yes, it is. So the U.S. Department of Justice has filed some lawsuits against a pair of telecommunications providers now, boy, this getting into this story has really been an education for me. Really? Because, well, I have wondered for a long time, as you and I have been covering these stories, how do these fraudsters get access to our phone system? Mm-hmm. And why don't the carriers shut it down? Right. If you're out there making millions of calls, you figure AT&T is going to notice that. Right. And turn off your switch. Yep. So this story was just the excuse I needed to dig in and figure out why that's happening and how that's happening. But before we get to that, the story is they've shut down a, a couple of uh, companies or they're they're asking to shut down a couple of companies. One of them, a judge has already issued a restraining order against them. They say one of these companies called Toll Free Deals Right. Over a 23-day period in May and June of last year, they connected 720 million calls to U.S. numbers. Okay, so this is a company that connects calls to U.S. numbers. Correct. So, so here's their how their customers works. are the scammers. Yes, their okay. customers are the scammers. And in this case, it was call centers out of India uh-huh. who on their own do not have access to the U.S. phone system. I see. So what they do is they contract with a company like allegedly toll-free deals. Right. And toll-free deals has access to our phone system. Now, how do you suppose a company like toll-free deals has access to our phone system, Joe? They're here in the U.S. Right. And they provide some kind of voice over IP connection to India. That is correct. Okay. However, here's some of the things that, that I learned that were surprising to me. Both of these companies are run out of people's homes. Really? Yes. They are run out of people's homes. So basically, with a a few computers and a high-speed internet connection, you too can be a scam provider or provide the mechanism by which scammers can have access to our phone system. Now, hold on, Dave. Now, these guys aren't really providing uh, scams. They're just providing a service, right? Correct. They are merely passing through. Thinking about how I can rationalize this for my own (laughs) own gain. Well, that's what they were trying to do as well. (laughs) And uh, the Department of Justice has had enough of it. Okay, then I won't do it. (laughs) Yeah. And so these folks, they'd set up their service. They would market to these 
people overseas and right. say, hey, you looking for somebody who's willing to look the other way? Yeah. <laughs> <We're>, that's us. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and that's what they would do. And the, I have, we'll have a link to the full complaint from the DOJ on it. If you are interested in these sorts of things, this is a really interesting education on that. I'll, I'll just uh, share a couple of things I learned here. One of the, the folks who's prosecuting this case, there's a quote here. He says, in the course of this investigation, I learned that with little more than off-the-shelf voiceover IP technology, an auto-dialer, and a business relationship with a gateway carrier, any individual or entity with a broadband internet connection can introduce unlimited number of robocalls into the U.S. telephone system from any location in the world. Think huh. about that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, how does it work? This is the part that I did not understand, and this is the part I spent a good amount of time reading this uh, DOJ complaint to get the answer to. I am looking forward to this part of the podcast, Dave. So it turns out that there is a thing called least cost routing. And this is an automatic routing system where, let's say I want to make a VoIP call, right? right? Voice over IP phone call. I reach out and I put the word out using this automated system. The I'm not going to get into the technical details, but the system by which these calls make their way through our system, mm -hmm. right? Basically, I put out the word. This is a lot like sending out a request to access a web page. So it's like this is like the DNS request. Correct. I send out a request and I say, I would like to make this phone call. So that phone call gets sent out to a bunch of what are called level two providers, and they basically bid on that and they say, oh, okay, we can, I can connect you to a level three provider. And the level three providers then bid on that. And then the level three providers connect you to the level four providers, which are the people like AT&T, the big names, the, the common carriers. So the common carriers are several layers down the road right. from the person making the request. And because of that, it basically hides where the original source of the call is. And that's one of the reasons why it's hard for people like AT&T to put a stop to this because they have to use something called a traceback, mm -hmm. which is a process by which is exactly what it sounds like. They have to trace back the call through all the different providers and try to figure out where the original source was. Right. And that is a expensive and time-consuming process. And in this case, the Justice Department found that it was worth it. Right. <laughs> because they went after and they found these two providers who were... And these are level two providers, right? They're actually level one providers. Level one providers. These are the, the gateways. Right. So the foreign callers contract, contract with, with, the, with these folks that the DOJ is going after. They're level one. They go to level two. Level two goes to level three. Level three goes to level four. Level four connects them with your phone or mine. So there's a whole lot of stuff in between the request to make the call and the actual call happening. The request to make the call activates the entire process, it sounds like. Correct. Except for the getting to the final network that we're on. Yeah, and it's all automated. Right. All automated. So the folks that the DOJ are going after, they had received countless complaints. Yeah, well, that's one of their biggest source of complaints is these robocalls. Right. They get right. like millions of complaints a year. Right. In other words, AT&T has gone back to all the way back to the level one provider and said, hey, knock it off. Right. And the level one provider, they would say, oh, OK, we'll we won't take calls from that number anymore. But of course, the bad guys overseas, they just change the number. Because right. Changing a phone number in, in a VoIP situation is 
routine. There's nothing to it. Right. So basically it's gotten to the point where the DOJ are going after these folks, trying to shut them down. And it sounds like the scale of this, where you have a couple of providers sending hundreds of millions of calls over short periods of time. I don't know. I'm kind of hopeful that maybe they can do something about this. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm not an expert in this phone system thing, but it seems like the simple thing to do is to regulate these level one providers. Mm -hmm. And that seems like where I would start. Yeah. Maybe there's already regulation and that's what the DOJ is trying to do here is enforce that regulation. I'm not really familiar with all this stuff. I'm almost ashamed to admit it, Dave, but I, I would I know a lot less than I'd like to about this. <laughs> well, you know, this is fascinating. Right. Well, maybe if the word goes out to these folks that, hey, this is no longer a good business to be in. Right. So if you are in this business, we're coming after you. Right. So knock it off. Time to move on to something else, which is not to say that the bad guys aren't going to find another way into our system. Well, it depends entirely upon what the penalties are here, right? Yeah. If the DOJ says, well, we're going to find you $10,000 and mm-hmm. you're going to shut down the business, then that corporation goes, okay, here's $10,000. Goodbye. We're going to shut down. But those people go and they fire up another corporation. Right. Right. And they do it again until they get fined another $10,000. Mm-hmm. If the penalties are now you have to pay a million dollars and you're going to be going to jail for a couple of years. Right, right. That's a different proposition. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't see anything in this complaint about jail time. It seems like... It probably isn't jail time. Right. For this. It seems like what they're doing at this stage is trying to get them to, to knock it yeah. off. So this, this might be a civil complaint. Actually. Yep. All right. Well, that is my story. It's an interesting one. We'll have uh, links to both the story from Ars Technica and the DOJ complaint here if you want to check that out. I think it's an interesting read, but I'm into this sort of thing. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you have for us this week, Joe? Dave, I got a good one. This one comes from Tatiana Sidorina at Kaspersky Labs, mm-hmm. and she has a blog post there. Over at Kaspersky, they found a website claiming to be the site of a personal data protection fund hmm. created by the U.S. Trading Commission. All right. Which does not exist. <laughs> okay. okay. So that's that's the first good part of this, U.S. Trading Commission. Okay. It's a good-looking site, right? Mm. So they, if you go to this, we'll put a link in the show notes, but if you go read the article, the blog post, it's it's... The site looks like it could be a, a U.S. government site. It looks very similar to the Social Security Administration's website, hmm. but it's it doesn't purport to be that. It purports to be from the U.S. Trading Commission, and there is a large dollar amount on the right-hand side. It's in the $4 billion range, and hmm. this is allegedly the amount of money that that is set up in this fund to give out. And there's a banner at the top of the page that says, the fund awards compensations for leaked personal data, and it doesn't matter what citizen you're a country of, you can apply. Huh. So okay. anybody can apply to get money from the U.S. government for leaked data. Uh-huh. And, of course, then the site offers to check to see if your data has ever been leaked. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> All you need to provide is this simple set of information, your last name, your first name, your phone number, and your social media accounts. Oh. Right. Red flag number one. <laughs> what does the government need with my social media accounts? What if I don't have social media accounts? All this other stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously just trying to gather the information about people. Now. Dave, before you get any big ideas, the site warns you that entering other people's information will result in a severe penalty. Oh, okay. Okay, So don't do that. All right. Right. The website does, however, accept any information, including garbage. And the researchers at Kaspersky entered a uh, a citizen named FGHFGH space FGH, FGH, <laughs> who I'm going to pronounce fig, 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 fig. <laughs> right. Okay. Right? Just smashing on the keyboard. Now, when they enter the uh, information for fig, 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 the site sits there and ponders for a while, right? And, and does like this little thing, like I'm connecting to the database. Hold on. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this on a website? Oh, yeah. This is 
BS, Dave. This, <laughs> that is not how connecting to a database works. Uh, it is almost instantaneous. If you're looking something up mm -hmm. and you have a properly configured database, that will happen within milliseconds. Right, right, but this is building up the excitement. Yeah, that this, I, I'm exactly. Gonna get, I'm going to get some money. This is a common technique, and it, they and it's used by legitimate websites too, to make you wait for the answer so that you think it's actually working on something. Well, look how much work they're putting into this. Oh, there must be guys <laughs> in the back room tapping away on keyboards. Right. No, you're looking at a uh, either a flash animation or a GIF or something. You're, I think about that thing from uh, the old original Star Trek when they would ask the computer a question, and you'd hear the sound of solenoids like right. working. <laughs> working. Yes. Right. That's what's going on in the background. Well, anyway, lo and behold, they found that this fictional character, Fig 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 Fig, had indeed had their data leaked. Ugh. Furthermore, it turned out that somebody had already used their photos, videos, and contact information. Uh -oh. So things are looking bad for Fig 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 Fig. Mm -hmm. But he was entitled to a reward in excess of $2,500. Oh, so happy ending. Think, Great. Send me a check, right? <laughs> Uh -huh. Not so fast. The fund can't send you a check without knowing your social security number. Mm. Uh -huh. What if you li don't live in the U.S. or you're you're not a citizen of the U.S.? Right. You don't have a social security number. Mm, you're out of luck. Don't worry. <laughs> There's a checkbox there that says, I apostrophe am don't have SSN. Uh-huh. I don't know how to read that. It's, it's really bad English, right? <laughs> it sounds like something Popeye would say. Right. Yeah. And you can get a social security number for the low, low price of $9. What? Nine bucks. You that's can buy a, a temporary social security number from this website. That's Dave. a bargain at twice the price. Right. Of course, okay. there's no such thing as a temporary <laughs> social security number. The U.S. government does not offer temporary social security numbers. They are permanent markers, which is actually one of the problems with them. And this is just completely a scam. Yeah. If you do try to complete this transaction Without buying an SSN, it'll return an error. It'll say, nope, you have to buy a temporary SSN. Even if you enter a valid social security number, it still says you need to buy a temporary one, hmm. right? So then they're going to process a $9 payment, presumably, on this card. Right. Uh, uh. And that is probably to validate that the card is good right before they steal it and then go sell it to somebody else. <laughs> right, right. That's my that's my guess of what the payoff is here. Uh, yeah. So, so th this notion that... The U.S. Trading Commission is somehow has this big pool of money to compensate people who, right. yeah. They're using the old, hey, you have some money coming to you. I don't want to say it's like the Nigerian print scam because it actually seems a lot more plausible than that. Yeah. We've all had our data breached. Everybody's had their data breached. All right. Well, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from scammerinfo.com. There's a user there named Jerry Can. And he sent out this, uh, well, I guess this is a Windows pop-up message, right, Joe? It's a, it's a web browser pop-up message okay. from, from Microsoft Edge. I see. And it goes like this. Windows Security, Microsoft Edge. The server partnerincrime.tech is asking for your username and password. Doesn't that, sound suspicious at all, does no, it? No, <laughs> partnerincrime.tech, totally legit. That server also reports suspicious movements detected at your IP address due to a destructive infection on your PC. Call toll-free for help. Your information is at real risk. Due to a dangerous infection, a computer framework record is missing. Debug malware errors and framework disappointments. Framework <laughs> disappointments? That's so sad. <laughs> I wouldn't want my computer to be disappointed. No. Contact the computer experts on the toll-free hotline. Do not shut down or restart your computer. Otherwise, data loss and operating system failure may occur. Ooh. Full data loss. 
full data loss. Contact the administrator department to solve the problem for free. Warning, your username and password will be sent using basic authentication on a connection that isn't secure. What? <laughs> okay, so the, this part here that says warning, the warning part is actually from Microsoft Edge, right? Oh. And so... <laughs> So they got caught in their own. Oh, all right. Go right. on. Explain, please. So <laughs> the, this is a security window from Microsoft Edge, a dialog box that's popped up. And it's telling you the server partnerincrime.tech is asking for your username and password. Yeah. And then there's just a text field that they can send along with that, which is the, you know, all, all the the fear, uncertainty and doubt about your computer being hacked. Right. And then after that, Edge is saying, warning. Your username and password will be sent using basic authentication on a connection that isn't secure. I see. So it's, this, is, this is a mishmash of things going on here. I thought it was great. Yeah. Partnersincrime.tech. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd think if you're a bad guy. Right. <laughs> and you're out there naming, you're choosing your domain name, <laughs> thinking what would throw people off the trail? I wouldn't think this would be it. No. But I guess. I'd be. Totally legit tech support services. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Red rubber balls or right. something, you know, something completely random. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but this this is not it. Partners in crime, bad idea. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, my interview with Anna Cullard. She is the founder of a security content publisher called Popcorn Training. They focus on cybersecurity awareness in South Africa. And we are back. Joe recently had the pleasure of speaking with Anna Collard. She comes to us from South Africa. Her company is called Popcorn Training, and they focus on cybersecurity awareness. Full disclosure, Popcorn Training was purchased by our sponsor, Know Before. Actually, that's how we met Anna Collard, was when you and I were at the Know Before conference uh, uh, yes. last year. Uh, crossed paths with her and thought she'd make a good guest for the show. So here's my conversation with Anna Collard. So Africa at the moment, we're we looking at about 1.3 billion people. And of those, about 40% are connected at the moment. But that number is going to double in the next two years. So we're seeing an explosion of people coming online. And because of the sort of, you know, the lack of infrastructure, a lot of those people that come online using their smartphones or mobile devices, because it's just not that infrastructure, and will be first-time users. So you're talking about people who will use their mobile devices for, uh, let's say, payments or, or mobile banking, but that would have never been exposed to any sort of awareness or education when it comes to using um, online banking, even on a on a computer or a laptop. So it's a massive opportunity, but at the same time, a massive risk. It's like a ticking time bomb. You know, you have like all these people coming online. And again, another very specific African thing that's going on here is that, and I believe like Sub-Saharan Africa is the, the region with the most payments done on mobile devices globally. So if you look at South Africa, for example, 90% of people use online banking and a, a, like a large portion of those, including myself, by the way, we you do it all via apps on your phone. The other interesting thing that came out of the survey, and, and I've also seen it myself, is that, you know, email is sort of quite it's like a thing of the past a little bit. Like if you want to mm. get hold of someone in Kenya, you use WhatsApp. So 99% of people in Kenya use WhatsApp and only, I think it's like 67% on email. And I know that, you know, we deal with, with a lot of partners and and. Um, organizations there. I can't get hold of them on email, but I will get hold of them on WhatsApp. 
on this show, uh, we talk a lot about scams, business email compromise, all those sorts of things. And it seems like a, a lot of that, the perception anyway, is that a, a lot of that is coming out of Nigeria. Uh, was there anything specific in your report that dealt with the situation in Nigeria? It is true. <laughs> um, a lot of the scams do come out of Nigeria. Interestingly enough, though, Nigeria is also one of the countries that is the worst affected by cybercrime itself. So, I mean, we only have numbers from 2017, so it's only going to, going to be worse now. But then Nigeria lost about $650 million to cybercrime. That's reported. You know, there's obviously way more that hasn't been reported. So they know that, you know, they sort of export the scams, but they also hit the most internally. So the government is has luckily, Nigeria is one of the few countries that has put quite a lot of effort in place by introducing, you know, regulations and sort of law enforcement to curb cybercrime. And that's the other, you know, if you talk about Africa, why it is such a, say, it's, it's, I always tell people, you know, cyber criminals love Africa or they're so attracted by it because A, you have the sort of internet penetration that is uh, above what, you know, cyber criminals would use as like a market entry. I think they, as soon as you have more than 20% penetration, it becomes an interesting market for them. You have the, the low level of sort of awareness or education. And then out of the 50 plus countries, we only have a handful that have introduced actual regulations to curb cybercrime. And a lot of that is obviously to do with governments having to fight bigger issues, you know, poverty and youth unemployment, etc. By the way, it's not just government, it's businesses as well. They haven't quite understood the urgency or the, the importance of fighting cybercrime. Where do you suppose that things are headed? I mean, we hear that Africa is going to continue to attract a lot of investment and will take more of its place on the global stage. Do you suppose that these nations will start to take notice of this, that they'll recognize that you know, part of their place as, as global citizens, that they're going to have to put some regulations in place, things like that? Definitely. And, and there are some positive stories like Mauritius, for example. It's a tiny, you know, it's a, like an island country, but it's, it's quite powerful in terms of the government's goals to become, they, they want to become a smart island and they invest a lot of not just regulations and policies, but they actually invest in actual um, enforcement as well. Because that's, you know, that's always the second question is it's, it's, it's great to have a, a, a law or a regulation in place. Like South Africa is perfect and, in doing that, they have great policies in place, but it's very difficult to enforce them or there's nobody around to physically enforce that. Whereas Mauritius, they're actually rated, I think, on a global scale within the top 10 countries in the world in terms of the proactivity and the embracement of fighting cybercrime. So what are some of the, the key take homes from the report? So the report has sort of confirmed that there is a, a definite need for more cyber security awareness. We had about 65% of people responding that they are concerned about cybercrime and quite a large percentage of, of the, the respondents said they don't know what they should do about it. But what is most, I find personally, what is most interesting, the results that this report showed was that you also get quite a large percentage of people that think they are sort of equipped or that they know what to do, but they actually don't. So that's that whole concept of unconscious incompetence, you know, hmm. that quadrant where you, you kind of, you know what you don't know, but then you don't know you don't know. And that's a massive problem because you have people that, that think, well, everything's fine. Um, and they aren't even aware of, of the problem itself or that they should educate themselves a bit more. 
By the way, so the the report, we had sort of a, a criteria that we would only interview or, or poll people that are currently employed. So those are professionals. So we, we excluded people that are still in school or that are not employed. And already that sort of gives you, you know, that's like a possibly just a, the top of the crop kind of thing. But the people that responded, they said that about 60% felt the employers have done enough to, you know, raise awareness. But in the same token, 65% didn't know what a ransomware was. More than 50% had no idea what multi-factor authentication is or how you would use that. And that's not just the African problem, it's worldwide, right? The rise in social engineering and phishing attacks and ransomware scares, the need to put something as basic as two-factor authentication in place, especially if you do financial transaction on your mobile devices, it's so important. Yeah, and people just, you know, they think they, they know, but at the same time, when you ask those sort of qualifying questions, they didn't. In summary, you know, it really is like a ticking time bomb unless we as like the industry are doing more to educate the end users. Because on the one hand side, you know, you have half a billion people that are coming online within the next two years. Most of them are first time users. A lot of them are not even English speaking and a lot of the material out there is just available in English. So you, mm. you'd be dealing with a lack of awareness. And then on the other hand, we've got them using mobile devices for financial purposes like banking and payments. Like Africa is huge with cashless payments. And then you have on, on the flip side, we've got sort of the increase in sophistication and phishing attacks, an increase in mobile malware attacks. And a focus on Africa because it's such an attractive region for cyber criminals. All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting, huh? Very interesting. 40% of employed people on online in Africa, and that number is going to double in short order. Yeah. That does present a criminal goldmine <laughs> opportunity. I like the three factors that she points to for that, that it's got good and growing access, mm-hmm. right? It's got a lack of familiarity with the tech, and there's little to no regulation. Yeah. And the other thing that stuck out to me was is this idea that so little of the training out there or even just the the information out there is available in anything but English. Right. And I suppose you have things like Google Translate and all that sort of thing. But I think it's easy for us here. The Internet is tends to be so centric to us and our needs. You know, we don't don't even think about it. Right. Well, the Internet was invented here in America. Yeah. So. It's very interesting. I think, Dave, that this is a great opportunity in Africa, that there's an opportunity here that needs to be seen, and that is to implement the security now. Mm-hmm. Now, the survey that Anna was talking about only surveyed employed people, 40%, but overall, 13% of people in Africa have internet access. Now, that's low, Yeah. right? So if you look at it from an opportunity standpoint, now is the time for all these service providers like the banking industry, any telecommunication industry, whatever. If you're offering a service... To people in Africa, now is the time to implement things like multi-factor authentication. So yeah. that just becomes the norm. Yeah. So that when people start using it, they learn how to use it with two-factor authentication. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of, I want to say, a couple of decades ago when the Internet was really just spreading around the globe. That right. There were some nations who were taking advantage of the fact that they didn't have to install copper infrastructure. They could go all wireless from the get-go. Right. Yeah, that happened a lot Save in a lot Asia. of money. Yeah. Like a lot of Korea is like that now. Yeah. South Korea. Right, right. So you're not you're not stuck with all that legacy stuff. 
Right. Why not build a insecurity from the get-go? Correct. As people are learning, it's just a natural thing to them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly my point. I also found it interesting that Nigeria is a big victim of cybercrime as well. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It does. It also makes sense that Nigeria is kind of a continental leader in regulation of this kind of stuff as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah I guess they have no choice. I mean, right. They have to be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if they're yeah. going to be global players, they're going to have to solve that problem that is actually a blight on the rest of the world. Right. What's interesting about that to me is that you hear a lot about some of the bad actors in Russia. Yeah. The government will turn a blind eye to them as long as they're not hitting Russians. Russian targets. Yeah. Right. So you hit overseas and we won't come after you. That's right. So that's interesting in contrast to what uh, yeah. Anna was describing here in Nigeria. Yeah. Nigeria is not taking that stance. They're, mm-hmm. they're going after these guys. Yeah. By the way, the report that she references here, that is the 2019 Know Before Africa Cybersecurity Awareness Report. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.